Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I'll be your host for this episode. Now, this is part two of the Butcher Baker series on this podcast, so if you haven't listened to part one, please do that first. It's going to make a lot more sense because I'm going to reference a lot of crimes and stuff I talked about in part one during this episode. So that's episode 38, the Butcher Baker part one. Please listen to that one first. And this episode is going to include horrendous crimes against other humans. Listener discretion is advised. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon. Any donation level helps, and it will help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast and a thank-you message from the host. For no cost, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you listen to it on. Thank you so much for all your support, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. So I'm going to start out by saying that my interest in this case was actually sparked when I stumbled across an unexpectedly good, and I'm going to use quotes here, based on true events, true crime movie about this incident called Frozen Ground. Uh, If you guys have seen this, you'll know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, the movie was released about 10 years ago. It stars John Cusack as Robert Hansen, Vanessa Hudgens as Cindy Paulson, and Nicolas Cage as... Uh, the investigator in this case he's there's a different name assigned to the the investigator his his character in the movie has a different name uh robert hansen and and cindy paulson are are named by name in the movie but i can't remember what nicholas cage's character is called he's actually representing uh, alaska's state trooper sergeant glenn floth f-l-o-t-h-e Again, I think he's got a different name in there, but all three of them do just do an amazing job of uh, playing the characters in this show. And as all movies do, they do take some dramatic liberties with the actual story. I mean, just kind of... Again, it's based on true events, so they don't have to stick to what the investigation found exactly. And there's, there's times in which they... Again, they they stretch the truth here or there to make it a little more entertaining or dramatic or whatever it may be. But overall, it's it's pretty true to the story, and the actors do an amazing job. And it's definitely worth a watch if you find this case interesting and you want to see a visual reenactment of it. There's also some documentaries out there about this case. Uh, I don't have any off the top of my head that I can name, but again, if you, there's a lot out there. This is a, a pretty well covered case but i hadn't heard much about it until i watched that the movie frozen ground and it was one of those things where i watched the movie and i don't know if i missed the based on true events thing in the beginning or if there wasn't one but afterwards i'm like man that was a really good you know thriller movie and then to find out it was based on true events afterwards it was kind of went that that's insane i can't believe that this happened so Now let's recap part one. Uh, In part one, we mainly covered the list of missing and presumed dead victims of Robert Hansen and the list of recovered murder victims. While it is said he will eventually admit to 17 murders, 
and that number is open for debate. Some say 16, some say 17. Many people think he's responsible for at least 21 and possibly more. So who is Robert Hansen and why is he called the Butcher Baker? Robert C. Hansen was born on February 15, 1939 in Esterville, Iowa. This is a small town in northern Iowa, just a short drive from the Minnesota border. His mother was from the area, and his father was a Danish citizen who naturalized when he married Robert's mother. The family moved to California when Robert was three, but returned to Iowa when he was 10, settling in Pocahontas, Iowa in 1949. Hansen's father owned and operated a bakery in the town, and Hansen worked at the family business his entire childhood. During puberty, he would develop severe acne that scarred his face, and he spoke with a stutter, two strikes against him when it came to being bullied and failing in his pursuit of dating girls. This led to him being painfully shy and resenting women, especially the attractive ones that ignored him during high school. It was said that Hansen's father was extremely strict and tough on him, an upbringing that wouldn't help an already quiet and lonely child. His only known pastimes were shooting guns and archery, which he spent a lot of his teenage years doing. Hansen enlisted in the Army Reserve in 1957 and served one year before being discharged for unknown reasons. He would later go on to serve as a drill instructor at a police academy in town while he started a dating relationship with a woman in 1958 and they married in 1960. But in 1960, he decided to get revenge on those terrible years of high school by burning down the local school bus garage. He was caught after the building burned down and he was sentenced to serve time in a state prison. He served 20 months and during a mandatory psychiatric review, he was found to suffer from manic personality, periodic schizophrenia, and he was deemed to have an infantile personality that drove him to enact over-the-top revenge on those that he believed wronged him. And his first wife filed for divorce while he was in prison. In 1963, shortly after being released from prison, he met another woman, got married, and they had two children. They made the decision to move to Alaska in 1967, settling in Anchorage. The move was good for the family, as it left behind the small-town chatter about his past crimes, and the family quickly made friends, and Hansen took up big game hunting, a sport that earned him respect and adoration from his peers. Now, as I was researching further in the episode, and this happens quite a bit where I'll find some things about this time in his life that I didn't know when I was doing the initial research for it. And it said he committed a a series of what they called small thefts after he got out of prison. Uh, so this was is between 1963 and 1967. So he, he, he meets this woman, gets married, and they have kids while this is going on apparently he's getting busted for shoplifting on a pretty regular occasion now one site again said he served no jail time for any of these it was whether the, the places didn't prosecute or what it was and then another site said he had a bunch of short stints in prison and that's why they left the town is because he was the family was getting embarrassed about the fact that he kept getting locked up for for these thefts so i don't know which one is true uh, the, the thefts seem to be accurate through everything is just whether or not he served any time for this and whether they left because of the school bus incident and these thefts or whether it's more just the school bus incident but 
no matter the reason, they end up up in Alaska in 1967. And as I said, things seem to be going pretty well. He's going to actually start up a bakery in Anchorage, Alaska, which is how he gets the, the nickname Baker Butcher. And apparently it's, you know, it's a small business he runs himself and he does pretty well for himself. He's involved in the community. He's seen as his family man and he takes up this big game hunting, which again, he has this love for, for firearms and archery and he would hunt with both uh, bow and arrow and with rifles. And at one point he had taken a world record uh, doll sheep down uh, during a big game hunting and and in the world of big game hunting if you can have a, a record you're you get a lot of adoration for that so again things seem to be going really well maybe he's left his past behind and uh, but we're going to see that things are going well until november of 1971 now in november of 1971 hansen notices this 18 year old attractive woman named Susie heppard while he was at a stop sign he follows her home and then he makes a plan. The next day, while she was walking up to her apartment, he ambushed her with a gun and told her not to move or he would shoot her. Her roommate was watching out the window and called the police. Hansen was eventually arrested and then released on bail. So while he's out on bail in December, Patty Roberts notifies the police about an abduction and sexual assault she endured. She identified Hansen as a suspect, and police brought charges against him on the case. So this is the case of Patty Roberts who actually talked about in part one, where he kidnapped her, drove her down towards Seward, Alaska, stopped the car on several occasions, made her undress, and then started driving the wilderness like he was going to kill her. Uh, so, th so this is now, like I said, we're, we've we've covered her case before in part one but now we're, we're covering this Susie Heppard case actually happened before Patty Roberts case and then Patty Roberts is actually she's not coming forward until after the the Celia Van Zenten case makes the news because when Celia Van or Celia Van Zenten goes missing on December 22nd that's only three days after Patty was abducted and sexually assaulted and she's going to believe, and most people to this day believe that she's right, that the guy that attacked her was the same guy that abducted uh, Celia. And that's what's going to have her go forward to, I, I call him the police handler, but it's going to be, she's a CI, she's got a guy that she reports to to try to work off charges. She's going to approach the CI and say, hey, I know about this case against me, it might be related to that missing girl from before Christmas. And then, because uh, I think the body was found on Christmas Day, Celia's body. So she's going to put that together and believe that what she went through is going to be similar to what Celia went through, and sh she wants to do the right thing and report that. Because both women are going to identify Hansen as a suspect, police bring charges against him on both cases. He decides he's going to cut a deal. He agrees to plead guilty to the assault on Susie. Uh, and that is at the cost of the prosecution dropping the abduction and rape charges against Patty. And the plea agreement is going to be accepted. Hansen is going to be sentenced to five years for his assault on Susie. 
However, he only serves six months before being released to a halfway house and eventually is able to return home. And this is actually going to be talked about a lot in this case once all of everything comes to light of what Hansen has done is the police were pretty upset. I think, again, there was a lot of prejudice against Patty because she was a sex worker and they didn't maybe think that they would get, if they took this to trial, that they would get any sympathy or as much sympathy from the jury on Patty's charges. So those were deemed expendable as long as they could get him on the charges on the non-sex worker who was Susie. And maybe at the time they thought, even if they took him to trial, there's a chance he wasn't gonna get more than the five years. So avoid the trial and just get him the five years. But I don't think they had any idea that when he was sentenced to five years, he was only gonna serve actually six months of that time. And I really don't know, I couldn't find anything about why his sentence was so severely reduced. Normally he would have at least had to do two or three years, but for some reason, I said he's doing only those six months, going to a halfway house, and then at some point after that, he's able to go home. And I don't know where this halfway house was either. Again, there's not a lot of information about the specific details, but the next two attacks are both gonna be down in Seward. Uh, and those are the two women that go that went missing and they haven't been found to this day. That's uh, Megan Emmerich and Mary Thill, and they were presumed killed in 1973 and 1975. So it would be interesting to know whether Hansen was, his halfway house was down there in Seward at this time, because he does admit to being in Seward both of those days where the women went missing, but he claims to not have involvement. Well, was he down there already because that's where his halfway house was, or was he predating outside of Anchorage because of the heat that was on him with this Susie and Patty case that he's currently he's on probation for. So I, without having the specifics, I don't know. But what I do know is that had he served his five years, and not that he would ever really serve all five of those years, but had he served closer to those five years, he would have been in prison at least during Megan's case, if not also during Mary's case, and they would probably both still be alive. In 1976, Hansen's going to get caught shoplifting a chainsaw from a Fred Meyer store, and he's charged with grand larceny. He's sentenced to five years in order to receive psychiatric counseling. Now here it would say the Alaska Supreme Court reduced his sentence, and he was released in 1978, but again, I couldn't find any reason why. If I remember right, I, I, I tried to find this, but I couldn't. I think I heard in another podcast, and I don't have verification of this, but that the judge looked at Hansen's past, his criminal history, and just kind of went, he's gotten too many breaks. Everybody's been cutting him breaks left and right. He only gets six months for these two horrendous crimes. He only served, I think, 20 months of a three-year sentence for burning down the garage he's had all these thefts and he just doesn't seem to be getting the message so i think the judge tried to come down hard on him and this five-year sentence for stealing a chainsaw i think was my if i remember right it was just deemed as an excessive punishment and what the judge was trying to do was was trying to make right and actually make 
Hansen serves some time because before now, whenever he gets convicted, he barely serves any of his time. And I think the Supreme Court looked at it and said, you can't punish somebody for these past crimes with the sentence for this crime. I'm guessing it was either above and beyond the guidelines for a felony theft charge at that point. But basically, the Supreme Court's going to come in and say, nope, uh, he's he can only get sentenced to whatever it was, and he's released in 1978. Now, this is going to eventually lead to the next and most extensive round of killings as they begin in 1980, and they don't end until he runs into Cindy Paulson and she puts an end to his killing spree. And I'm not going to get into the very specifics of this investigation because there's a lot of stuff with it, and I don't know if I'm going to have time for it, but Cindy gave the police the case on a silver platter and this is as I talked about in part one the result of her detailing everything about her crime to the investigators she's got his house uh, details about his house bullet hole in the floor names on the trophies all the trophies around there all the stuff that she shouldn't know unless she actually went through the experience she's claiming she went through However, Hansen's able to take the, most of the heat off of him because he's able to convince a couple of his well-connected business friends. So these are guys that are, you know, that own businesses in the Anchorage area that he hunts with and, and hangs out with to give him an alibi for that night. And he's going to tell them something along the lines of, I'm in, you know, I'm in trouble with my wife for I was hanging out with this young girl and and she's making these accusations against me. So if my wife or the police ask, like you were with me, you know, for most of that night, and and then I'll I'll deal with the stuff from the early morning hours because his alibi is going to be that he's with these two other guys for most of the night. He meets up with Cindy at the strip club or the nightclub or something like that in the early, early morning hours because she gets picked up by that pickup truck at like 5 a.m. And the, the security guard sees this whole interaction between them around that time. So he's going to claim he's out with his buddies till you know 3, 4 in the morning, and then they separate. He goes to this nightclub, meets Cindy. They're hitting it off. They're going to go have this kinky sex date or whatever it might be. And Cindy turns on him, finds claiming she finds out he's a married man, and she's going to extort him for all this money. Uh, I'm going to tell your wife. I'm going to, you know, if, he, if she finds out he's a business owner, he's got to have cash. So his claim is going to be all of this is a quote unquote misunderstanding, and Cindy's actually the suspect here. She's trying to extort him for money, and and and. It, everything fits in the fact he's going to say yeah i brought her to my house after the nightclub so that we could hang out and so that's how she knows about my house and the stuff in the house and and the handcuffs are just part of this kinky date thing and so so he's got it all covered to a certain degree and all he needs to do is have his friends buy him some time so that his story matches what he's telling the police and so they agree to do so and so now the investigators are saying well We've got three well-connected businessmen, if you include Hansen, telling us that the crime couldn't have gone down the way that she's claiming it's going to go down. This guy's got reasons for her to have all these details. And again, unfortunately, it comes in down to the fact she's a sex worker. This is the early 1980s in Anchorage, Alaska. 
they're going to believe Hanson over her. And so they're kind of, as much as they've got this case on a silver platter, really they can't get any traction because of these alibis. But at the same time, even though I mentioned this is Anchorage, Alaska in the early 80s, a large transient population of sex workers and, and maintenance workers and that kind of stuff coming through there, they're not the police aren't able to turn a blind eye to the fact that there is a abnormally large amount of women being missing as or being reported as missing in the area between 1980 and 1983 it even when you have this transient population and whatnot you might have a couple missing persons reports a year that are looking like foul plays involved but the rate at which i read that that Hansen is abducting and killing these women it does not go unnoticed and so the anchorage police department and the alaska state police are actually going to start this task force to try to figure out who's doing this because they're noticing the similarities as well they're talking to these these friends these co-workers of these sex workers that are saying she you know the last time i saw my friend she said she was going to go take photos with this guy for 300 bucks and so the similarities, 300 bucks, 300 bucks, 300 bucks, photos, a date for 300 bucks, go meet this guy. You know, all of this, these similarities, the police start to realize all these women that are missing, they're kind of missing under the same circumstances. We might have a serial killer here. And the guy who's running this investigation this the, or, or catches, I guess, the, the Cindy Paulson part of this investigation, this Glenn Futh, he has a pretty strong inkling from the get-go that Robert Hansen is going to be the guy that they've been looking for in this task force. So when he first catches this case, he's going hard after Robert Hansen, but he, again, just like we talked about before, runs into this alibi and whether or not Cindy's telling the truth. And the movie does a good job of kind of covering all this stuff. Just, just because Cindy went through this terrible experience doesn't mean that she is abandoning this life. So for the days and months, or days, weeks and months after this event, he's trying to stay in touch with Cindy to continue to build this case. And it's so difficult because she's back into this life with the drugs and the, the, the sex work and that kind of stuff. It, it's just very difficult for him to, to continue building this case against Hanson. But what they end up doing is they end up sending uh, a request to the FBI, the guy we talked about before, to John Douglas with the, the criminal profiling unit, behavioral unit, whatever you want to call it. And he asks them, hey, this is what we have. What type of guy should we, we be looking for? And without knowing Hanson's their suspect, John Douglas tells him the killer's going to be well-integrated and well-liked in the community. He's going to run his own business so he doesn't have to account for missing hours from work. He's going to be an avid outdoorsman. He's going to have low self-esteem and afraid to talk to women, and he likely suffers from a speech impediment. And, I mean, you almost couldn't make a more accurate profile to Robert Hansen than what John Douglas is saying. This is, this is the guy you're looking for. And I can't remember if he even got the acne part right. There's there's something else that was in there. I think it was the acne because I think he said something about the guy's going to have a malformed facial features or something. That's basically said the guy's going to be ugly because he can't approach women 
with confidence type of a thing. So, I mean, it's, it's like they printed out a poster with all of the characteristics of Robert Hansen and they could just slap his photo on there and say, this is the guy we're looking for. So Floth is going to believe even harder at this point that Hansen is their guy and he decides he's going to take a shot at this alibi. So he goes to the friends that offered up the alibi for Hansen and he basically tells them, look, this is what I'm looking at. You know, there's a possibility your friend is involved in these missing women and we believe he's murdered them and and everything. And that night I'm looking at him for the abduction and rape and torture of this young woman. And you guys are covering for him. And if what you're telling me isn't true, I'll come after you with charges, you know, accessory after the fact to this investigation as well as you know obstructing the investigation and again these are well-connected guys in the business community they don't want to deal with a the flack they thought they were just helping out their buddy that was maybe having some marital issues or you know just a minor run-in with the police so they immediately back off and say nope we were with them until you know the the late evening hours but you know from the time that that we last saw him to when you were having this con- you know this conversation with Cindy like yeah there's there's five six hours there so that alibi is completely gone now Cindy's story looks like it could be the the accurate one and there was also and I don't remember how they arrived at this I can't remember if it was Cindy telling them about the trophies or if it was the the friends they talked to in the alibi that that said this to the police if they were you know almost upset with Robert for putting them in this position, but somehow it got back to Glenn Fluth that the all these trophies and a whole bunch of weapons and that kind of stuff in the house had been claimed to have been lost during a burglary. Like Robert had filed a police report saying his house had been burglarized and it was quite a bit. I want to say it was like a hundred thousand dollars in 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 that time period. So probably closer to Two hundred fifty thousand, almost maybe three hundred thousand dollars worth of loss in today's money, and he filed a a claim against his homeowner's insurance for it, and it was granted, and he was cut a big check, and it was believed that he used the money from that claim to buy the airplane that he's been using uh, for his crimes, and I want to say this was known to Glenn Fluth before they went to Robert's house because they're able to between the potential fraud investigation and Cindy's story they're able to get search warrants for uh, Hanson's house car and plane at that point now the movie has more reference he's got this remote cabin uh, up in the, the the wilderness somewhere and it's more tied in with the movie and I did find a couple articles that talked about him flying women to this remote cabin but I couldn't find anything in the investigation itself saying that they either went to this cabin or they looked into this cabin that he had. So uh, for now, just for the sake of the investigation stuff I could find, it looked like he went to this, or they went to his house, car, and plane. Now they're going to do this at the same time as they call Hanson in because they want to talk to him about his alibi getting destroyed. So they got him down at the station and then they're going to send officers out while he's at the station they're going to send officers out to serve these search warrants and there's going to be two reasons for this one is officer safety 
they know he's got a whole bunch of guns that he's willing to kill. So the last thing you want to do is serve, serve a search warrant on somebody who feels like they're a cornered animal and they've got guns. So you can get him out of his comfort zone and put him in that in that invest that uh, interview room or interrogation room. You've now created a safer environment for the search warrant, and again, you've got him out of his element and out of his comfort zone if something is discovered. So at surface level, the house didn't appear to offer much in way of evidence, but they're going to look really, really close. And they're, it said they found this map behind the headboard, so I don't know if this was like a, a hidden spot behind the headboard. It didn't say what type of headboard it was or if it was you know, taped up on the back of the headboard so that it was out of view unless you knew where it was. But they find this aviation map, and it's going to have... Like over 20 of these X's on it. And they're going to be kind of spread along uh, rivers and areas around Anchorage and Seward. And and they assume that this is some type of a location map that he's keeping track of something. But, you know, all they have is the map at that point. And then I think it was in the basement. They found this hidden panel behind one of the trophies or near one of the trophies. And that hidden panel... Uh, produced a treasure trove of trophies from these women that he had hunted so it was like jewelry and ids and all kinds of stuff basically when he killed the woman he would take a couple items that would remind him of that woman and, and put him in this little cachet that he had and then the final thing was in the attic they found some way they figured out that he had hidden some guns uh beneath the insulation or something in a kind of a notch or something in in the attic area and they're able to produce several of the murder weapons as a result of finding these weapons in the in the attic so investigators at the house will call down to the station they're going to inform floof they have located the evidence that would tie hansen to the missing and murdered women and so now he's going to go after hansen not just for the alibi falling apart but now they've got direct physical evidence that he's involved in in these these missing people and eventually Hansen's going to break and he's going to offer a confession and he's going to admit uh, part of his of what he admits is that during his short time in the army he had been sent to New Jersey for training and some of the guys there introduced him to picking up sex workers and this was new to him and he, he liked the fact that they weren't going to reject him uh, but he he didn't get that feeling of revenge that he wanted to against women by just performing these quick sex acts with the, the sex workers. So that's why in 1971 he decides he would find and attack attractive women that reminded him of the ones that rejected him in high school. But he's going to quickly find out with the, uh, the, the case against Susie that if he attacks women outside of the sex trade, the police and the courts are going to come down on him hard. So he abandons the idea of picking up women that he that he sees as attractive and stalking them, and he goes back to sex workers, and he's going to uh, focus on attacking them. Uh, we've talked about why he saw them as easy targets. It's easy to isolate them, and he can kind of get away with doing whatever he wants to them, uh, and that way he fulfills his desire for the, the pleasure and the revenge. And then he's going to eventually combine his love for hunting with these desires. And this is when he begins flying women to remote locations so he can hunt them. And then he keeps some of their items as his trophies. 
and I don't remember how many he admitted to or if he would admit to anything specifically, if he just spoke in general terms when he gave his confession, but eventually the ballistic tests from the weapons are going to match bullets found in four of the victims. So now they have everything up till now was guns that matched the calibers, matched bullets found in the victims that got this map and they've got four of the victims have been recovered and that's on four of the X's on the map or where victims were recovered from and they've got you know some some of these items so everything's looking pretty damning for him at that point but now they're gonna get these ballistic tests back and say no just 100% whoever had access to these weapons killed these four women so they're going to go to a grand jury which is going to indict hansen on four counts of first degree murder and then the prosecution is going to approach hansen with what i would call a pretty abnormal deal uh, we've talked about it only once before i think and that's the jacob wedling case and that's where they're going to approach the suspect they have charges on and they're going to say look if you're honest with us and tell us about any other cases that could be cleared up by your actions or by you telling us about them we're not going to charge you with any of that stuff you get full immunity from those charges we're not going to give you immunity from the charges you're facing and and those are dead to rights you're going to prison for the rest of your life charges but if you do this for us not only will we not charge you with any of these crimes we're going to make it so that you stay in a in a better prison in the Alaska state prison system. And so not that he had much choice. I mean, I guess he could have said, nope, uh, I'm not going to help you at all. Like I'm already going to be in prison the rest of my life, but maybe it was the not getting sent. Cause I think they, they told him that his crimes were serious enough that he could get sent to a supermax prison. And I don't think they were lying about that. And supermax prisons tend to be, 23-hour lockdown prisons where the prisoners are in their cells for 23 hours a day and they're only out for an hour of, of kind of like exercise and stretching and stuff and so having the rest of your life knowing you're never gonna you're not only gonna not see the outside world but you're not gonna experience more than a, an hour of time outside your cell for the rest of your life um i think made him think okay well if i can go somewhere that's a little more lax where i can you know, I'm out of my cell more each day and communicate with other people, I'm not in isolation, then then that's a better option and it really doesn't cost me anything other than just giving up these, these other uh, crimes. So he does decide to cooperate and between the map and his memory, he leads officers and investigators to 17 of the locations on his map and he would to the best of his recollection detail who he killed at these locations and where he buried the bodies now this was in winter so the ground was covered in snow and frozen at the time so investigators marked the sites by spray paint spray painting trees and then they returned after the spring thaw so that's why when we went through all the, the bodies that were found a lot of them were found in that late april early may of 1984 and that's because that's the spring thaw after he's led them to a lot of these different sites and eventually 12 of the bodies are going to be recovered from these 17 gravesite areas that hansen has shown them however he did refuse to show them grave sites at a few of the locations on the map 
and he would give kind of I don't know unbelievable reasons why those X's existed and there weren't bodies there and but three of these were in the Resurrection Bay area in Seward and they're believed to be where Megan Emmerich and Mary Thill are buried and it's believed that he refused to confess to these crimes because they weren't sex workers and again even though he's not facing any additional charges it's not like he needs to protect himself anymore whether or not they're sex workers he's there are no charges coming from it but it almost feels like at that point he had some type of a morality thing where he could be okay if people knew that all he did was kill sex workers and i'm not agreeing with this at all i'm just saying i'm just speculating maybe in his messed up mind there was some thought process to I'm okay with confessing to killing sex workers, but I won't confess because neither Megan or Mary were, were sex workers. The one was doing laundry and the other, her husband was out of town and she was doing errands in, in Seward. So maybe he just, on some weird, perverted, personal morality clause, he said, I, I'm not going to confess to stuff that isn't sex workers, but... And, and, and police have tried, they've looked in these areas, and, and people probably have to question, well, if you've got an X on a map, why can't you find the body? Well, I'm guessing this is a map of all of Alaska, which is a gigantic state to begin with, and an X on a map could probably represent, a, I'm get, just guessing here, but a 10-mile area, and that's a 10-mile diameter area on a map. And so you're talking about 40, 50, 60 square miles in which that body could be in, in a remote wilderness area. And when I thought about this in my head, um, I have a couple acres of property up in northern Minnesota that I haven't developed yet. And sometimes I'll just take uh, my dog out on, on those, that property, just let her run around and, and, and we uh, just enjoy our time up there. And it's only, again, I think it's two or three acres. And when you're in the middle of that, you can't see any of the surrounding area around you like i could probably put you know a t-shirt or something like that especially if i covered up with a little bit of leaves or something like that and i'd be surprised if somebody found that even knowing what they're looking for in that small of an area in a day's worth of time now if you're going to talk about potentially a shallow grave in an area that is a hundred times that size and you don't know exactly what you're looking for, it, it makes sense why there's belief that there's several other grave sites out there that he hasn't that he won't confess to or that he that he didn't remember where he buried these women at. And so uh, again, that's that's why the number is somewhat askew. Now Hansen was sentenced to 461 years in prison without the possibility of parole. Which was interesting that they didn't just do like four consecutive life sentences or anything like that. They they went after him with by years. And again, that might be how Alaska does it. I don't know, but it, it just was strange that there was a, an actual number attached to it. It was 461. Uh, and, and Hansen died on August 21st, 2014, 75 years old from health complications. And as I mentioned, he confessed to some places say 16, some people or some places say 17 murders, and that's obviously the lowest it can be. Some people think he's more in the range of 21 murders because I think that's how many X's were on the map was 21, and some people believe that he had he had more than 21 murders. 
and there are significant gaps in the time frame outside of the time that he was in prison so there is a very good chance there may be victims out there that have no little to no social structure uh, nobody's reported them missing and if you look at the case of like the Akutna Annie it's been 43 years since she's been discovered somewhere around there and she's still not identified like nobody either from a missing persons report has looked at the photos they've done of her and said yep that's our that's our missing relative or whatever it may be so if you've got a person who's identified they've done all of the stuff they can do to try to get this person identified and they still don't know who she is there's a very good possibility that Robert Hansen has a few victims out there that nobody reported missing or nobody is drawing a connection between a missing persons report, say, in California or Oregon or something like that, and tying it into his crime because their body hasn't been found. The anonymity of of these areas and these crimes, that's that's what he how he was able to get away with this for twelve years. So and just some ending thoughts here you know some people question well what was he doing this whole time i mentioned he had the successful bakery so he had a regular source of income to support his family and he was a well-respected member in the community and he was seen as his family man so nobody was going to suspect him of being the guy that's that's killing all these women and it did say that his wife was really religious this is his second wife the one he has the kids with um but some question how she tolerated his criminal behavior and and that's something i question too is I get that maybe she wasn't aware of this other side of him because I think she would take the kids on these like extended vacations and that's when he would be doing a lot of these crimes because I don't know I think she'd bring him back down to the lower 48 states where her family was from and stuff and they'd, they'd visit for a few and he had to keep the bakery running so he would stay back and that's what gave him access to be able to commit some of these crimes without his wife knowing um but it just seems weird like he's busted for trying to abduct the woman they were married at the time he goes to prison for it and there's not more questions there he's arrested for stealing the chainsaw there's not more questions i mean she knew about his crimes from when he was petty shoplifting in in iowa but does he get away with just saying sorry i messed up and ask for forgiveness or how did she get through that and then his mental illnesses we talked about some of the stuff he was diagnosed with back when he was in prison in iowa and we come across that schizophrenic again and it's very important we separate paranoid schizophrenics and schizophrenics he was not a paranoid schizophrenic and that schizophrenia is is basically that an inability to form intimate relationships with others or to see others as people which is of course what we're seeing as he's treating these women as you know the same as his big game trophies or whatever it may be so i think that's probably accurate now it's said he had both manic personality and bipolar and maybe that could account for some of the the gaps especially if he was medicated at times and wasn't medicated other times there's some times that he could control some of this stuff with medication and other times he couldn't those would probably contribute and then we always want to talk about those early serial killer tendencies did he show anything in his childhood well we've got his obsession with shooting and not that that has you know is not everybody who shoots bow and arrow and guns turns into a serial killer but he's got that 
in his past, and you combine that with his very apparently domineering father. He suffered a lot of verbal abuse, maybe physical abuse, and then the rejection from women. And then he's obviously got arson because he burned down the, the the bus garage. So he clearly has some stability issues. And then on top of that, with the schizophrenia and bipolar, I think there's there were some signs that he was going to have some major issues in his life and then we also have to remember because a lot of people will still say to this day they can't believe that this was all going on and we just have to remember i mean alaska in this time period the late 70s early 80s was kind of considered the wild west up there and there was a lot of money we talked about that the guys going up there the sex traffic industry whether it be the strip clubs or workers on the street was very prevalent very well known even up there and it, it kind of created this this perfect storm for a guy like this to get up there and then do what he did and get away with it for so long now the hero of the story it's pretty obvious now not that I don't think Sergeant Glenn Fluth is, isn't a hero, uh, but he was doing his job. He just did it really, really well. The hero of this story I have is definitely Cindy Paulson. Uh, and when I looked into her life a little bit more, she came from a very, very tough upbringing. Uh, she was abused and her family was, was living in poverty. And we just talked about that not too long ago with the uh, Chester Pogue case about how a couple of the suspects in that case were abused and living in poverty as 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 children and here we see the opposite we see a person who doesn't turn into a suspect they turn into a, a a victim as a result of their upbringing she runs away from home at 12 it said by 15 she was working for a pimp and this guy would be giving her the things in life that she could have never had before and it's very common for somebody coming from a very poor abusive upbringing will they'll get recruited into sex work by be give, they'd be given clothing and jewelry and nice gifts by these guys and then these guys slowly groom them and turn them into their property and then they turn around and use them to make money and that's what happened with her and she ends up in anchorage and she's she's a survivor she's doing what she needs to do to survive uh she's like many other sex workers, she's going to be hooked on drugs and she's going to be involved in nonstop abusive relationships. And after her near-death experience, she did go back to that life, but she was eventually able to get out of it. I was I read somewhere she got married, she had three kids, and when she was approached about the movie Frozen Ground being made, you know, she could have just said like I don't I'm I'm guessing she probably could have even said don't even use my name in there. And they would have had to change it. I'm guessing that's why they had to change the name of uh, Nicolas Cage's character. But she not only says, yes, you can use my name. She sits down with, with that actor, Vanessa Hudgens, that's going to play her. And she really gave her what life was like for her back in this time period in, in Anchorage, Alaska. And Vanessa would actually go on to say that this was hugely helpful because she was able to to replicate through her acting what Cindy was going through at that time period. And afterwards, uh, Cindy would say that watching Vanessa's performance made her feel like she had a weight lifted off of her. And I think that was because she had to live a lot of people looking down on sex workers her whole life. 
and the movie really did do a good job of of showing how heroic and strong she was and that was really well done by Vanessa in the movie so you know to have gone through what she did in her life and then to have the wherewithal when she was going through this near-death experience to recognize how dire her situation was and then remember every detail just in case she survives and leaving clues in case she didn't uh, this this definitely showed how willing she was to fight to try to survive and I'm happy to hear that she was doing well in 2013 it's something I thought of after seeing the movie is I kind of wanted to know and, and maybe there is something at the end of the movie that says some of that stuff I can't it's been a while since I watched it but now I want now I want to watch it again I'll say her action saved her life but it all, she also saved the lives of many others because Robert Hansen was going to keep doing what he's doing and uh, until he got caught until he got stopped and and she's the one that did that, so she's definitely the hero. All right, that's it for uh, The Butcher Baker, in case I really wanted to, to cover at some point. And hope that you guys enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Stay tuned for future episodes. Feel free to write me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions at gmail.com. And you can find me at TrueBlueCrimeProductions on Facebook and support me via Patreon at TrueBlueCrimeProductions. And uh, that's it for today. Thanks, guys, for listening. Have a great day. Goodbye.